and welcome to episode 94 of The Stag Raw. This episode I sit down with Jay Hawley who goes by the name Diabetic Carnivore. That's right, he's type 1 diabetic and follows the carnivore diet and has sensational results. This um, is hugely important, not just for type 1 diabetics, type 2 diabetics, any diabetics, but um, all of us out there, they're at a risk of insulin resistance, which is most of us, and basically wanting to live a better, less inflamed, less psycho lifestyle. Um, having insulin under control is so important, and someone who's type 1 diabetic following the carnival diet um, just highlights the how important it is and how easy it is to function and why carbs are non-essential nutrients. Can leave it there and let's enjoy this podcast with Jay Hawley. So good. Hope you enjoy. Kia ora everybody. We're speaking over Zoom as per usual. Um, Hong Kong this time. Jay Hawley. Mate, uh, what did you do this weekend? You said you're moving house. How did that go, brother? <laughs> uh, so, so I'm in the middle of it. Um, so, yeah, you, you give me a call. I'm like, I'm in the middle of viewing like seven apartments. I'm trying to move out of the city. So I live in Hong Kong. So I've been living um, in central Hong Kong for like six years, you know, um, one of the most densely populated places in the world, right? Um, I think I heard out that if the, if the whole world was as populated as Hong Kong, uh, we could fit the whole world inside of Egypt. So uh, it's, it's mega, right? So uh, I was like, after six years, I'm like, I'm gonna move out to one of the islands. So I'm out looking at all of these apartments, like seven apartments. I'm like, oh damn, I got my time wrong. I should be joining a, a podcast now. But um, yeah, so I apologize for that. But uh, yeah, that's, that's what I did all weekend. I just looked at new apartments. Nice man. And so, what what is it like living in a densely populated city like that? As you just said, you nearly lost your aura ring because you've lost twelve kgs, and we'll get to that part very soon. But what's it like um, looking at your variability, and, and do you have moments where the heart rate goes up, and you're just kind of looking around, going, "Whoa, what's 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 so primal about that right now?" Yeah, it's 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 a, a joke between people who live here. I guess the expats like living in a concrete jungle because. Um, it's just tower block after tower block after tower block, you know, and uh, it's a lot of stimulation all the time because I know I live in, I, I don't know if, I don't know how to convert this to square meters, but I live in a, like a 370, maybe near 400 square foot apartment, you know, which is not a lot of roaming around space. You know, I live in a tall block and, and if you go outside, there's just people, it's just I don't, I don't know how to describe it, but it doesn't feel that natural to be surrounded by so much, any people, so much light, so much noise, so much, so many cars all the time, every time. So I think that everyone has got like a, a big city kind of like time limit and depends on how much uh, access you can get to like nature, you know, because nature is so calming, it's so soothing. Um, so I'm moving to somewhere just to be around trees. It sounds very hippie, you know, like when I was a teenager, I, I would, we use the term hippies for people who hug trees, but I'm all for it. You know, I definitely just need to be in an environment surrounded by green or visually, if anything. Yeah. And so I've got a couple of mates playing rugby over there. Am I right? The island has a bit of a jungle on it on Hong, in Hong Kong? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, it's, there's, it's there, but it's like it's, it's accessibility. It's like, oh, I'm, I want to go for a run in the woods, you know, or just go for a hike. But it's like, okay, but you have to go and get like a 30-minute taxi to get there. 
you know, and it kind of <laughs> loses, loses the buzz for it. Whereas um, when I, I grew up in Wales, I'm, I'm Welsh. So yeah. um, it's like there's parks. Urban planning is better because even though you don't have, you know, like 30 minutes away to a beach or whatever, it's quite convenient. But in, in Wales, for example, where, and even when the valleys where I grew up, it's just like you just step outside and it's like, oh, then you can go for a run or then you can go for a walk, you know. So it's a bit, it's a bit trippy, but um, it is there. It's just at the end of a taxi ride away from you. Yeah, man. And so how did you end up uh, being one of the expats in Hong Kong? Well, I think people do things for two reasons, love and money all the time, right? So I was in university and uh, I, I, met, I met this girl. I was in Wales. Uh, she was over studying and then she's a local Hong Kong girl. And she was, this was 10 years ago now. And she was like, well, after I finished university, I'm going back to Hong Kong. So I was like, sure, I'll, I'll, come, I'll come for a recce, see how it goes. And then uh, I never left. Man, man. Um, so... How we got in contact, and, and it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. I'm sure the requests have been coming in, man. You got regrammed by the one and only Sean Baker, who yeah. I, che- I checked the other day, and he's actually slipped to second on most most downloaded and most viewed podcasts with me, uh, Megan Ramos from uh, Intensive Dietary Management's overtaken that mantle. But Mr. Sean Baker regrammed you because... Um, you were for the last year a type one diabetic managing the condition on the carnival diet. Um, yes. Let's start off with how did the diagnosis come about? So my diagnosis came when I was 14 years old, and I to this day I got conned into being diagnosed by my grandmother. I was I was saying to this to a friend recently. Um, my grandfather had it, and my younger brother actually has it as well. So he had it from the age of seven. But he's only three years younger than me, so um, so basically we were all we were all sitting at home this one day, and uh, we were he was measuring his blood glucose, and we had like sort of routine where he would measure his blood glucose before we started to eat, and then we would all eat together like this kind of family at grandmother's house, and she, you know she was like, oh, wouldn't it be a good idea if we all measured our blood sugar today, you know? Um, and I was like, okay, great, you know, being uh, fourteen years old, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And then I pricked my finger, and it was like oh, wow, your blood glucose is uh, like 23, 24, which is, you know, the very, very high you could possibly be on the scale. And then I, we were, you know, and then she was just like, ah, oh, I knew it. She phones up my dad. I, I go to hospital. I didn't even stay over that night. I leave the same day um, with some brand new insulin pens. And hey, you're, you're an insulin-dependent diabetic. Uh, just inject some insulin and go on as normal. Have a nice life. And oh, it was just, you know, not, not so much to those degrees, but, you know, obviously having it in the family, they were just like, you know, the same standard of care, you know, yeah. um, but that is the advice, you know, the advice. And I remember clearly this woman speaking to me, she was saying, sorry, this woman, this nurse, um, it's okay. You know, you can have a normal life. You can, you can eat what every other child eats, right? And I, I think looking back, you know, at the time you're like, yay, that's great. But at the time looking back, it, it should be rephrased. It really should be, you know, you, know, you can have a normal and healthy life. It's not going to be easy for you. You know, you're going to have to make some drastic dietary changes, but you can live and do all the other stuff that kids do. You know, it shouldn't be focused around you can eat all the stuff that other kids eat, right? I think the, I think the narrative is, is slightly wrong with the, Western diagnosis then. And then they were just essentially on top of that, they were saying, oh, well, we're going to find a cure in seven years anyway. So to be honest with you, you know, what's the worst that can happen in seven years along those kind of lines, right? Um, 
And it's 16 years later, and we still haven't found a cure yet. Well, well, not have a cure. We haven't, we haven't found an immediate cure, but you know, we're getting, they we're getting more and more and more evidence now to suggest that it's not what we thought it was. Um, it's not, you know, the condition isn't what we were told it was. And you know, there's a much bigger influence with diet and immune system and all these other things that are involved that we just really isn't part of the education when you, for a 14 year old boy, I understand, but you know, even for the parents at the time. Yeah. And so did you, did you have any symptoms? Had you been ill? Had like, had you been sleepy? Had you been going to live a lot? <laughs> you know, all those typical things. <laughs> yeah, actually, I mean, apparently we caught it early, but um, the one, one, the one overriding thing that I can remember was just chronic thirst. Right. I was just downing and downing liters and liters and liters of water, and then just passing it and passing it. And you know, obviously, that's classic symptom. If your blood glucose is too high, your body will try and flush it out. You know, you you will try and take on as much water as you can to try and pass it out through your bloodstream so, um, and your digestive system. So that's the only one thing I can remember. I remember losing, losing weight, not, so, not the world's most amount of weight. At the time of my diagnosis, I lost about six or seven kilos, which isn't lows compared to some type one diabetics who literally will lose 10, 15, 20 kilos before someone says, oh wait, you, you, know, you have type one diabetes. Shit, yeah. No, it's um have a family friend that was yeah, getting close to comatosing ish. She was, you know, fast fast asleep on the couch and luckily um her mum was a nurse and so it was like this ain't right and yeah. A bit like you, diagnosis and go home again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well to be honest, like I mean I'm not complaining, like the uh, it's, a, uh, it's a it's a modern disease because, you know, I, I wish I chat to people who are in the know how and if anything has escaped natural selection, then it's, it's, it's a modern disease, for example, you know, I mean, technically from a hunter gatherer perspective, you know, all the type one diabetics should have died out a long time ago and unless we somehow missed it, you know, unless the, you know, we weren't in that situation where we were eating these kind of foods. So therefore our bodies didn't present these symptoms for it to, you know, to die off as part of natural selection. So it is a modern condition. Um, but thank God for the modern intervention of insulin because, you know, I wouldn't be around. Yeah, so. that's right. Um, and so you, you touched on it there that the ancestral may, maybe didn't present uh, these high glucose excursions. How have you, what sort of been your time course? It's, it's a year of being carnivore. How did that sort of first come about and what have you noticed around that sort of presentation of symptomology? I think um, my starting carnivore, I, I have a friend who's a super, a colleague actually, super geeky. Um, and for the, for the longest time since we worked together, he was always talking to me about, uh, oh, you know, Charlie and Joe Anderson, you need to check these guys out. Charlie and Joe Anderson, you know, these, are, these guys have been uh, 20 years, they've just been living on meat only. And at the time, because I had so much uh, education from like, you know, paleo fields and all of these you know, pro fruits and vegetables, you know, functional medicine, all this sort of stuff. I was like, yeah, 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 okay. I mean, this was like years ago, you know, I was like, yeah, but fiber, you know, how would you digest your system? You know, it always, um, it, you always uh, need like a, a, an epiphany moment. So around the same time, I got diagnosed with an intestinal infection. Um, I was, I was just for the longest time, I wasn't feeling good. You know, I was feeling lethargic. I was bloated. I was distended. Um, I went to see the doctor. And then uh, she was just like, oh, I'm just going to do some stool tests on you just because um, 
I think that you're presenting symptoms of some GI distress, for example. Mm -hmm. So we went and we went a couple of stool tests and it came back and not only do you have um, like serious bacterial overgrowth in your intestines, but it's, uh, it's, it's progressed into intestinal infection, which, uh, you know, it, what happens in the intestine is, is that if the more bacteria you grow, you know, the bad bacteria you grow in your large intestine, it can creep up into your small intestine, and then that sort of blocks you absorbing nutrients, and things get progressively worse and worse and worse, um, and it can go a few ways, leading to things like intestinal cancer, for example. Um, so she was just like, uh, listen, this is probably why you have about 13 or 14 nutrient deficiencies, because we were testing that at the same time. Um, because obviously the bacteria was quite bad. So it, it went, my, 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 my vision started looking at things like low FODMAP dieting, which she pointed me on to, you know, you have to go down this path, look at low FODMAP dieting, um, and look at, start looking at keto and stuff, all of these sort of things that people know that there's evidence when getting rid of this stuff, and uh, a whole bunch of, bunch of antibiotics. Um, and then again, with conversations with my friend, I, I came on to this guy called um, Borges Fragoli. Um, he's this uh, crazy guy from Europe, and he wrote an ebook um, basically on the carnivore reset. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was reading this ebook, and he, it was like, oh, I had an intestinal infection, I had SIBO, FODMAP failed me, and this is, this is what worked for me, you know? So I just went deep, deeper, deeper and deeper down the hole. I went to find him, I, I even called him up a bunch of times see what's going on. And then he pointed me to like a more encompassing book called uh, The Hyper Carnivore Diet. It's like about 350 page book, super, super valuable because it goes into everything that you'd want to possibly know from an ancestral point of view on the carnivore diet. Um, Read it cover to cover. And then as soon as I put that cover down, I was like, I went to my fridge, completely on the spot, (laughs) overfold everything. (laughs) No, sorry, fuck this. and just as I was like doing this massive epiphany moment, I saw Sean Baker popularizing uh, World Carnival Month. Yeah. Um, and I was like, okay, that's it. I need four steaks a day um, for the whole of January for 31 days. I'm going to do 124 steaks a day. It's 124 steaks in a month, nothing else. And I'm going to post each one to my Instagram stories for like a whole <laughs> um, And I was only intending on doing it for the month, but I never, ever looked back. And I haven't looked back. I never will ever look back to this day because intestinal infection is gone. You know, my diabetes management is incredible. I can actually breathe through my nose for a change. I had like, I had like congestion back of my nose for about three years. Um, which obviously affects sleep quality, as you know, um, and just a bunch of just everything just got better, right? So, uh, yeah, that's that's as simple as I can say. What what started off by one little rabbit hole of the low FODMAP diet turned into uh, carnivore for life. Wicked! I got really caught up with the fact that the person that you were seeing was like, "You've got something wrong with your intestines. You're not absorbing these nutrients." You've got SIBO. What what medical system was this in? Because it sounds fantastic, <laughs> and the fact that they recommended yeah, keto as well. That would this sounds amazing. Is this a, a place? <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's, this is this is all private medical care. This is unfortunately this is uh, a functional medicine doctor that used to train. Because my my profession now is uh, I educate personal trainers, but um, obviously I still work with a clientele base, and part of that clientele base I was training a functional medicine doctor. So yeah. we had like a, you know, a relationship I would go down and 
um, over the last few years, I've had like, you know, micronutrient tests, I've gone in for IVs and all these sorts of things. But uh, she was like my acting physician as a, as a functional medicine doctor and um, just spotted the fact that I had uh, an intestinal infection. Um, and, and bam, yeah, like I, I think I, if it wasn't for that diagnosis, I, I don't know what could have or would have happened to me. You know, it, 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 there's so many people around me uh, that I hear of, obviously, because I'm interested who are getting these awful intestinal conditions like intestinal cancer here and having to get all of these things removed. And I'm, I'm grateful for that diagnosis, even though, you know, I don't think she's completely on board with the carnivore diet. That's completely fine. But, you know, the fact that, she, you know, she's into low FODMAP dieting, she's, uh, she's diagnosing people who have these conditions is, is, is wonderful. Yeah, no, that's so awesome to hear. Um, we, my, my partner and I are super lucky. We, we used to live. Um, there was a, what is he, integrative practitioner. So he's GP trained. Uh, he's taken some medical herbalism, some Chinese traditional medicine, and he's found that he can diagnose equally good with kinesiology that he can with blood testing. And oh wow, yeah, same same here. Mold, mold and SIBO. Bit of candida overgrowth, man! What a, what a turnaround in energy is just just absolutely fantastic. And, and um, yeah, she, he reversed my partner's um, endometriosis, and you know, we she got pregnant, and all those things are yeah, fantastic results from, like I say, just going that little extra step, going a little bit more holistic. And um, someone that we had on in our last episode, uh, he, he sort of had a heart condition, and he's just gone and seen somebody else, Dave. Dave O'Brien from a gym in, in, in Melbourne in Australia and, and again he's someone that dives deep into well you know you're low on these nutrients these markers are generally showing some overall information and, and yeah just awesome to hear that there's practitioners out there just doing wonderful things like that it's so cool it is, it is incredible you know I think that's why it's important for you know me you and everyone just to share these kind of these share with people you know because there's people out there struggling you know, against common advice yeah, no, and shit, as, as my job as an optometrist, I, I, I hear the shopping list of, of medications and, and look at the person, look at their eyeballs and go, oh, where do we start? Far out. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, you say stuff like leaky gut, and they're like, what do you mean? It's like, well, do you eat bread? Yeah. Have you tried not? No. <laughs> do, you drink, do, you drink, <laughs> do you drink milk still? Yeah. I'm not saying you're lactose intolerant, but hey, it might be getting across your gut and yeah. clearing up all that arthritis and gout and all, the, all that sort of stuff so yeah no it, it's it's a it's a crazy world and, and it's awesome that this this stuff is out there and in places like hong kong it's it's alive and well as well so you're saying you're you're educating in that in that sphere what, what what's sort of the role that you're taking on oh one-on-one uh, personal training so um basically the model that works really well in hong kong um is because space is such a premium we have a uh, uh, a couple of gyms where uh, clients come in and we do a uh, one-on-one training for the hour mm-hmm. uh, and they leave. But we basically, we offer everything like the holistic service from, you know, stress management, sleep management, nutrition, you know, activity. We, we kind of, we have the whole thing. And then if we need to, we can refer out to like friend businesses that have like physiotherapy or we can refer out to functional medicine doctors and then, they'll send us some information back. So within our scope, we can, we can really work with the client because these busy professionals, like, you know, like the CEO and lawyer types that work in these big, uh, densely populated uh, expat cities, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
a lot of them are a mess. You know, they just <laughs> travel work, travel work, travel work. So we uh, we're trying our best to uh, you know help that human condition, I guess. Yeah, no, the, the vibe that you get of Hong Kong, um, it's it's a yeah, like you say, it's a bizarre place, <laughs> um, full of full of stresses here, which which as we all know is good and bad depends depends in, in what dose so what what's you know the aura ring obviously trying to sleep is is the, one of the best medicines but how, how do you get to that point of getting somebody in such a good physiological state that they can maximize their sleep and what sort of what sort of stuff are you guys trying to measure <laughs> trying to improve on <laughs> uh, well i guess i guess I, I don't like to call things in levels but there there is you know so a typical a typical setup will be um, we'll give someone, obviously someone comes in with a goal, you know, Hey, this is my goal. Usually something to do with health aesthetics or post injury or something along the lines. Right. Mm. You know, goals are ambiguous because it's hard to control a, a goal in isolation. So we really break down the, the daily behaviors needed to achieve that goal. So we, we, we focus on a couple of ca- categories of such as, uh, you know, the daily routine, um, a nutrition goal and an activity goal. And with the, we, they can start from like very, very basic goals, which, or they can go to quite advanced complex goals. So, you know, we'll give someone um, a morning routine and an evening routine. So the morning routine could be simple as, right, um, seven o'clock wake up, you know, five minutes past seven uh, weigh in and then 10 minutes past seven hydrate. And that could just be just building the steps on someone to start living a healthier life. And then an evening routine is obviously about mitigating as much blue light as you can. So we're we're setting people up with okay if you if you need to be in bed by 11 then let's let's just start with your evening routine at 10:30 at 10:30 let's just have like a technical uh, sorry technological lights out and start prepping yourself for bed whether it's you know do some breathing do some journaling you know taking taking whatever supplements if you you're doing that sort of thing or prepping whatever you need to just to give people like these basic steps and then obviously a nutrition goal which can be a very detailed nutrition plan um, you know, working with, you know, doctors or nutritionists or, or we can just be simple as, can you just try eating three meals a day for me for the time being? Or can you, you know, can you just try stop drinking alcohol every day? So, and then activity is usually regarding number of steps or training sessions or, and we'll just start someone off very basic, trying to build the foundations of a healthy lifestyle. And then over the coaching process, we, we just add layers to those goals. You know, if you're like me and you're, you're wearing mouth tape and you have eye masks and earplugs in and, you have a total blue light shut down from before you go to bed, then that's great, you know, but there's, there's loads of steps in order to get someone to being that crazy. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I just noticed my um, flux just came across for a notification. It's uh, eight hours until I wake up again. And these, these are blue filtering and yeah. So my, my screen's nice and yellow um, at the other end of the spectrum. <clears throat> sorry, there's a frog in my throat. Um, other end of the spectrum for the morning in, in a place like Hong Kong with tall buildings and, and artificial lights is there, are there many people that are, giving themselves a good dose of red light to just try and, I don't know, start, start that circadian rhythm off again so that by the end of the day it, it shuts down <laughs> at the same time? No, no we, we tell people, and it's like, you know, that, that, that AM sunshine is so, so, you know, getting that light in your eyes in the morning is so, so valuable. And, and you can feel the difference, you know. Like I'm sure if you've woken up sometimes before work and you're cracking out some work on the, the laptop and then the sun comes up and, you know, I positioned my living room around so, that the sun comes up on my desk and in, in the morning, I can just open the windows and, and get mm. it if I need to be. But um, it's, it's a hard buy-in for that one. And, and what I found more anecdotally is uh, you get much more of a benefit from getting people 
shut down in the evenings with less mm. blue light than you get from the pickup in the morning um, from that red light in the morning. So it is on the goals list, but most people we're, we're working from the evening backwards, you know, essentially, and yeah. just trying to say, um, can, you know, can you get out in the day for like 15 minutes to 20 minutes to get some sunshine? Because as long as you're getting some of that spectrum across the day, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Anchoring, you know, Absolutely. And so chucking back to type, type 1 uh, diabetes um, and the sort of small parts to play that type 2 kind of tells us about the possible long-term effects for a type 1 diabetic, especially if they're well, not overdosing on insulin but needing to use higher doses, that um, good circadian rhythm, that good light exposure, that good sleep means that their body is going to be more likely to be insulin sensitive do you as someone who tracks your staff do you even notice that you know a good rhythm like that means that you need less less insulin is is that something that you've ever noticed 100 percent. we all go through stressful periods in our life um and moving apartments is a stressful period as well so yeah (laughs) but i i notice um that, that that if if i haven't been getting enough deep sleep um and if i haven't been getting enough sunlight exposure uh, my insulin sensitivity is worse. I'm having to do a lot more correction doses than if I was not. You know, some days uh, I'll check my, my eyes wear a continuous glucose monitor and it'll be completely flat throughout the whole day. Um, my blood sugar has barely gone up or down very much at all. And then days where I'm, I'm highly stressed or I'm highly strung or there's something, there's something going on. It, it's, it's like there's a, I'm, I'm, because there's so much circulating stress hormone, it's like I'm injecting, but at the, the injection is just, it's not coming through at the right speed. Mm-hmm. So it is like a resistance to that insulin. Um, so then what will happen is that your blood sugar will continue to rise um, with the stress. And all of a sudden you just have like a massive drop off, boom, and then you'll, you'll go hypoglycemic. So uh, the, the higher stressed you, you are and the less you are in the healthier rhythm, the, the more uncontrollable your diabetes does get 100%. I, I can vouch for that. So uh, my advice for you know diabetics or everyone is that I'm like a zero carb anyway. But for people who who, who do participate in like eating carbs, or if you're a type two diabetic, um, even when you're traveling, for example, because traveling has got a big stress on the body. Uh, you know all the stimulation, the lights, the, the being in this metal tube for getting shot around the world it is really really beneficial to run on low carbohydrate diet when you're doing when you are stressed or when you are tired or when you are. Um, any situations um and even so that i've just found fasting when i'm traveling is completely even way off because even even on a zero cow approach my blood sugar is still unpredictable when i'm traveling so i eat when i'm home and then i don't eat until i get to the hotel or the next morning usually yeah and, and there's plenty of anecdotes around there that um fasting on the plane means no jet lag and so it's interesting like you say that that stress insulin um response and what's happening with the blood glucose like you know, just think about it. If you've, like you, you know, like you demonstrated just then, you've, your body has kind of built up this this energy reserve, and then all of a sudden it has a massive crash, and then you wonder why you want to then go go, go to sleep in the middle of the afternoon. It's and 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 it's and that's like the extreme case of of what so many people are doing with their day is that they're giving themselves this big bolus of carb carb heavy food for lunch and then a massive crash in the afternoon and then they have a coffee and up that cortisol and just become a little bit more resistant again it is it's yeah (laughs) it's this cycle that 
people just can't don't get off this blood sugar roller coaster, you know. Yeah, now, and I think um, Sean put up a, a post of a guy in Kenya that's also doing doing um, carnivore to manage his type one diabetes, and of course they they struggle immensely to have access to insulin. So it's it's basically saving his life, saving his money, saving his everything. Um, yeah, and, and one one of the personal trainers. Oh, he probably doesn't even want to be called a personal trainer anymore. Um, he's, he's a coach. He's a strength and conditioning coach um, in Australia, King and Smith. Put out there that, you know, what what does this post mean for you and you and I who are not diabetic? And, and he said, is exactly that what we were just talking about? That roller coaster that you put yourself on throughout the day, that insulin response. You, know, you hear uh, many people talking about that over your lifetime, you want that area to be under the curve of, of insulin to be as small as possible with periods of, of bursts to try build muscle um, and, and, and maintain longevity. And, you know, how, how much sort of feedback have you had from the non-diabetic community of, well, what you're doing is awesome, what you're doing is so highlighting and illuminating. You know, has that message been coming through? Yeah, the, like, I, I guess it's quite easy for people to separate, the, you know, their brains because, you, you know, human behavior, well, oh, yeah, but that's because, you, you know, you have diabetes, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, to be honest with you, the, 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 the benefit, the, the strong benefit was ever since, um, you know, Sean Baker reposted my, my post, I, I've just had an inbox full of people asking me questions about type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. And I've just had the opportunity to, to answer a lot more questions to people who are obviously, there's, there's still a lot of confusion out there. So the, the, general, the feedback from people with these conditions has been huge. Um, but the feedback from non-diabetic populations I've noticed with my one with my teaching practice has been so valuable because I've had so much feedback from what diets work and what diets don't work and what the effects are that um, I can I can give people much more um, advice from my n equals one study you know with some literature on top of that about what's going to be more beneficial for them in, in terms of energy production so um, with regards to social media there hasn't been like this massive um, reaching of people with regards to blood sugar, but um, for my own one-on-one -on -one practice with my clients, it, it, it's been very much so. It's like, okay, yeah, you know, you don't need this much carbohydrate. Let's let's try you on this. Let's just try you on that. You know, we can we can try this. This is going to be much more stable for your blood sugar. People are like, wow, you know, all of my endurance runners that I train uh, and mm. switch to this low carbohydrate approach are just like, wow, this is this is awesome. And, and then you know, as we know, Zach Bitter just is the fastest man in the world over a hundred miles now. Yeah. Um, and I'm sending his pumping his stuff to my endurance athletes. And, um, it's been, it's been valuable, although it's come across obviously to myself testing on all these things on myself and getting this feedback. It's, it's been very valuable to use the information that I've gathered on myself as, as evidence and, and as a learning tool to teach people wider about the effects of nutrition in general. Yeah, and, and Zach's an awesome example, and I'm stoked that he came on here and had a chat as well. But you know, awesome example of somebody that is just getting better the more he does does this. And yeah. like, like I said, yeah. this is this oh. is the first time I've ever negative split at a hundred k. And like, you just think about the time period and, and all of that to like go faster after all that time. Like, yeah, well, what's going on there? Is <laughs> uh, my my client saying he's like, wow, you know, he's running at like a. 4:30 km pace for 10, 12 hours. That's like <laughs> unfathomable. Yeah, no, that's cool. So, so what is um, ATP? That's that's the area that you, you work. Is that right? 
yeah, that's that's the name of the gym. Yeah, and so what, what's that sort of standing for, and what is what is that their sort of mission? Um, obviously, I you know when people ask me, it's like, uh, um, yeah, is it adenosine triphosphate? That's definitely what we. But it's cool. But most people, and in Asia, that doesn't trans translate very well. So, um, oh my, you know, I, I, is it, I, I should know this as a director, but I think it's uh, the, the name that we we run by is Attain. Uh, Wow, I actually need to go on the website and Google it. Um, <laughs> we, we kind of got a cane train purpose, something we try, something that people remember, but everyone knows it says ATP. Um, and, uh, you know, our mission is uh, sustainable transformation. You know, that is what our, what our goal is. We, we, we're trying not to be, we're not that gym that comes in and has people uh, do a 16-week crash diet of chicken and broccoli, you know, uh, eat eat less, move more. Let's just get you in shape for a photo shoot, and then on your way. You know, we, we I'm not I'm like me personally. I'm not against um, deficits for people who are overweight. You know, that's what you build up a deficit for. But you know, getting people into a state where you know for the right person where you can you, you are low carb, so you and you you are healthy and you can access your fat reserves better. And then when you get to where you want to be, that that enables you for the rest of your life. That doesn't that doesn't mean you don't have like a dieting life and then a non-dieting life that have no convergence you know we want to build we want to build the steps and we want to build the coaching practice together so that you can you know you can go on for the rest of your life you do graduate from us you can have the healthy you can do whatever you want to do we're trying to enable so that is our mission statement is um you know sustainable health transformations we want to create the most educated trainers in the world which is why we invest so much money in our education platform in-house and then obviously every business is there to be financially successful. So, you know, that allows us to grow more and train more people and reach more people, which I think is, uh, is we're just going in a slightly different direction to where the industry, a lot of the industry is going with their transformation stuff. But um, I think we're going to where the industry needs us to go um, mm-hmm. in that space. And so is uh, Hong Kong recently transient or, or there's a fair number of people, like you say, you've been there six years. Uh, <laughs> what's yeah, what's that like? It is transient, like it is, it's hard to like, uh, people do come and go like, well, I know it's my client base, you know, my client base will recycle every two, three years, I guess, maybe every four years. Um, but yeah, and usually people leave because uh, they, they get moved overseas, they get jobs overseas. Um, but then you bump into people like who've been here for 20 years. So there are people who do come and they settle down and stay. Um, but then there's also that, that, that kind of like turnover. And, but then the local population has been here forever. You know, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, uh, local population that they come in and train in our gyms now. Um, we have both, we have local trainers and expat trainers. We, you know, we catered English, Chinese, everything. So uh, um, yeah, we, it is, there is, there is, uh, there's about 400,000 expats in a, like a, a 7 million population. So, you know, the, the residual people do stay here, right? Mm-hmm. And so what, what is sort of, uh, the sport slash fitness sort of ideal for the island, or is it not? Is, are you guys kind of new? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. The uh, the uh, so you're asking what's the most popular sports on the island? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the the, the, the whole city for expat is geared up towards uh, endurance. I don't know what it is about CEOs or these guys that just work incredibly long hours that they just want to go and train incredibly long hours as well. It's just like the alpha A mentality. It's like, right, I work fifty plus hour a week. What's the best thing for me to do? Oh, I know a triathlon. Yeah. I'm gonna train for a triathlon, you know. So um, <laughs> we have in Hong Kong about 300 km of trail that you can go and there's marked trail that you can go and run 
Um, so there's a lot of swimming. There's a lot of inter there's a lot of um, Olympic sized swimming pools here, um, and then there's cycling in, in various parts. But a lot of running, a lot of swimming takes place in Hong Kong. It's more of an endurance sport city, I would uh, I gather. And then obviously the rugby, and then there's a bit of football as well in between. Yeah, and your your cricket as well. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and how much does Bruce Lee uh, come into it? <laughs> Actually, no. I, 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 he's got his own museum now, which is pretty cool. But that was only recently, a couple of few years ago. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, actually, on HBO, they just released. Um, they, they, one of his. He wrote a story, like he wrote a bunch of books. You know, Bruce Lee called Warrior, right? So HBO are actually now like produce, uh, pr like they, they're filming it, and there is actually being released on uh, season one's already finished. So. Uh, I had the privilege of training one of the actors for that, who's from Hong Kong. So that was uh, that was pretty cool. That's pretty dope to see the inside on that. That's what, that's what I mean. And so for you, as you said, the story to you should have been: you're going to be able to do everything that a normal kid can be. Um, there's just going to be some uh, slightly harder things that you, you're going to have to deal with, and, and a few mindsets um, to, to overcome. What was your sort of athletic up upbringing and, and, and how did that lead you into an industry of, of strength conditioning and, and education and health? Yeah, well, my dad has always been in, in super encouraging me to go and do, um, to be active as possible. You know, he was, he was quite, he was, he was super valuable to have someone pushing me to do, to do athletics training. Um, I guess what happened was, you know, I, I did the university, good son. I went to university, I did business. I went straight into a banking degree, uh, banking graduate role after university. Um, and then uh, and then I was like, do you know what, mum and dad, I'm going to try and make it as a professional MMA fighter. So <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna stop. I'm, and that was a time that I was competing in local martial arts scene. Like, you know, I was competing in jiu-jitsu, I was competing in Muay Thai. And, and, and I had to start making weight mm -hmm. for all of these. And that was my first real about 10 years into my diabetes, eight to 10 years into my diabetes, right? First time I'd ever had to really lose weight for something, you know? I mean, from the age of about 14 to 24, you never really think about leaning out, I guess, maybe 22. Um, and then I was like, I was trying to lose, you know, five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 kilos, whatever it was for the weight class. And, uh, and it really got to me that the effect of diet on weight, you know? So I started modeling around with different um, approaches to instant, looking at stuff about nutrition, reading everything that I can in, in this sort of field. And I really found that, you know, this whole nutritional science thing was something that I'm really passionate about. And this whole training thing was something that I was super interested in. So um, I, I, I was in banking, I retrained as a trainer, a personal trainer, just because uh, I had such an interest in this sort of thing. Um, and then I picked, I, you know, I started in the UK, picked up that profession as soon as I got out here, always thinking that I could fall back on banking, but I never have. I just, I've just, I've just ran with it. I've been out here for six years and, uh, fortunately enough, it's going well. So, yeah. Nice. So that's how we got into it. And so, uh, the MMA, what, what, what was the draw card and, and did you see you from the, the valleys, you know, is, is it because of that typical, uh, rugby player, Barbara sort of stuff or, or, or is it, <laughs> is it something different? <laughs> I, I guess, um, I guess, do you know, like, I guess young guys have always got to try and prove themselves. You know, I, I'm 30 now. So I, I started all that when I was about 17 or 18 and you always want to be tough, you know, like 
my dad my dad did martial arts his entire life so i guess maybe i was trying to prove myself to my, my dad or something at the time but it's more than that because when you get into these sorts of uh environments it's such a big community yeah you know like you know you end up going because you, know, you have your you're the training mates and all these sort of things and it sort of ropes you and entices you in and then you all train together fight together so that was what kept me going there but i guess just like every 17 year old yeah you know i, I just want to be I want to be tough, so I'm going to start doing martial arts, you know, so that's how, that's how that all starts, right? Yeah. And then um, how did that sort of go when you got to Hong Kong, that the environment was there as well? Yeah, so there's actually, well, obviously it's not as well developed as the UK, um, and then even less developed in the US. Um, a couple of my old teammates from the UK um, actually made it to the UFC, so there was quite a good team. Um, but um, I, yeah, I was still doing it when I came out here. There's a really big expat scene for all of these sorts of gyms and, and around, but um, I guess I just, uh, I, I, I fell out of, I, the, the whole community thing, you know, is so valuable because I was, I was so involved in the UK and then you, you move team and it's like changing families. So I moved over here and I never really got embedded with a, um, a brand new team or a brand new family. So, and then, you know, when you're, I'm as a trainer and when you're trying to graft in the early years, your, your, your PT, prime PT clients at the same times that the lessons are on you're supposed to be going to, you know. So um, for better or for worse, maybe for the long-term effect of my knees and my brain damage, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, I'm out with the game. But um, it is something that I, I do still watch on TV and I do love it. And I sometimes go on occasion to do some jiu-jitsu just for old times' sake. Um, but yeah, there is a big, still a big scene here in Hong Kong. Nice, nice. That's so cool. And so what does your training look like these days? So I, as you know, the picture that Sean Baker just reshared, I, I did a, a carnival cut. So I wanted to, um, I wanted to go against industry norms and industry norms for training for a photo shoot are right. So I'm going to, I'm going to eat chicken and broccoli, but you know what I mean? I'm going to, I'm going to suddenly go from like a, a junk, a, you know, a, a liberal diet to like a, a really strict clean diet. Um, training volume is going to go up. I'm going to eat lots of little meals and, across the day you know because stoking metabolism and i'm going to do loads of cardio and loads of training volume and then eventually i'm going to be very lean and i'm not about that lifestyle so what i decided to do was do it completely carnival you know i'm only going to eat 100 percent meat and eggs primarily for the, the whole of this photo shoot prep and then i'm going to only do low volume training and I'm only going to train weights four times a week. And if I need to, some days I'm only going to eat once. Some days I'm going to eat twice. Some days I'm going to eat three times, depending on how much energy I need for that day. Um, and I did, you know, 12 kilos over about 14, 16 weeks. And it was the easiest cut I've ever done. Um, I actually did some 48-hour fasts in there, um, in the middle, just to keep stuff going. Um, and I... I I came out the leanest, you know, the biggest that I've ever done. And I'm lighter now, even after uh, six weeks after my photo shoot, than I was going into my photo shoot. Because when you're on this carnivore approach, you just, you know, there's no, there's no all of these foods that I miss. I, I'm not depriving myself. I'm not nutrient deficient. And I didn't have a massive post photo shoot rebound like I've done in the past. Or after a fight, I've had a massive rebound because there's a massive difference that people need to realize between being energy deficient and being nutrient deficient. Mm. And people run into a lot of problems when they are on such, you know, limited diets of 
of ch chicken breast and, um, and cruciferous vegetables that you will become definitely nutrient deficient. And you know, that bumps up that all of your nasty cravings and you get all, and you, you're in this kind of sugar roller coaster. Um, but for me, you know, I eat the same things now that I did before, just steak, salt and eggs. I just eat a little bit less when I want to lose body fat. And if I want to gain some more muscle, I just eat a little bit more. And, uh, like I said, I'm still exactly the same that I was after that photo shoot. So if someone was like, yo, can you take some more photos in two weeks time? I can do it. You know, there's, um, and I still train low volume and I still don't do, you know, stupid amounts of, uh, steady state cardio in the morning. So uh, that was my against grain transformation, which I haven't pushed out on social media yet, but I'm going to do a, a big write up about like how it doesn't have to be like Flex Wheeler magazine, you know, where you have to do this ridiculous amount of arm day, back day, leg day to get into the world's greatest day. Um, and yeah, so it's been, it was, it was great fun. Don't get me wrong, I'm not going to tell people that just being on Carnival is magical and it takes care of all of its problems. It does, but you still have to respect um, the basic premise of how much food you need, you know, like I can't eat I can't eat the amount of food Sean Baker needs every day, you know, because I'm an 80 kilo man and he's like 110 kilo man, you know, there's, there's still, there's still that equation of, you know, you, you need a certain amount of food for the amount of activity, but it's so much easier to auto regulate and have satiety when you are on a meat based diet than if you're not. Yeah, man. Um, uh, you're, you'll be a man after Brian Sanders art cause, uh, he's all, all about that. What do you say? Um, eat densely trained on oh, no, easy train intensely. So maybe, maybe not quite, but <laughs> I think what he meant was a low volume intense training. So yeah. <laughs> I train. Yeah. That's the thing. I train like super intense, but it's just in the old days and people are like, you need to do six sets. It's just like, no, I'll, I'll, I'll do about 12 working sets a day, you know, as opposed to doing the typical 24 to 36 working sets a day. So I'll, I'll train, like I said, same as him, I'll train hard, you know, I'll do deadlift squats, prowler, weighted carries and all that, just not excessive amounts of it, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's sort of where I'm at at the moment with my training. I haven't joined a gym since moving back to New Zealand, but yeah, throwing a, throwing a dumbbell around and, and a few chin-ups and things like that and, and lunges nice, and nice. stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's cool. yeah, but a bit of beer crawling, it's, it's always, it's always uh, interesting how painful that simple movement is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's super painful, you know, like these locomotion patterns are tough. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you said with the cart, how was, did, did you measure sort of body impedance or anything like that? Did, did, did um, muscle mass change much? Uh, no, to be honest with you, I, it, it didn't. I, I, for my skinful measurements, um, uh, even though I lost uh, a large amount of weight, I, basically we were running off, um, you just take a couple of skinfuls, you have a set of yeah. metal calipers, and uh, I don't like to look too much into uh, my body fat percentage on a week to week basis because, uh, you know, whether you're hydrated, dehydrated or whatever factors, it can throw the numbers out and then you, you get into all these head games about, oh, I'm losing lean muscle mass or I'm not. But um, the things that I measured, you know, anecdotally is, did I lose any strength? No. You know, so if you didn't lose any strength, you know, two weeks, three weeks after you shoot, your, your normal strength levels going in, then, you know, there's, a, there's, there's anecdotal evidence that you haven't lost a large amount of muscle mass, right? Mm. Visually, you can see have you, you know, what have you lost, and then you can measure your skin folds and, and punch it into a calculator that gives you a rough idea of what your lean body mass percentage is. And uh, no, I can, I can safely say that I'm as strong. Um, and as I was going into the photo shoot, I didn't really think I lost any lean muscle mass, even though that I was doing 
a couple of 40-hour fasts. With that said, the leaner you do get, I think that you there's a limit to how long you can fast. Um, I think as you start getting down to, you have super visible abs. Um, you should, you need to have like a few high days around uh, an extended fast in order to try and preserve lean muscle mass. Because if you're in like a daily deficit and then you throw in a, a, a gap of, uh, of no eating at all, I, I do think there's a, a risk to lean tissue mass. And I, I think that we should all be trying to preserve as much lean tissue mass as possible, especially as we, as we age. Um, so that's one thing that I would be careful of is, uh, is doing extended fasts later in your cut. I'd get them done earlier in your cut to, to start speeding up, get you into a deeper level of ketosis, um, start you shifting some more fatty acids faster. Hmm. Um, but, uh, no, I, I, I am as strong. I feel good. So I, uh, I should go and get a, you know, a DEXA scan properly, or you should, I, I should get one now and then go and get one in a year's time to see what the effects are over a year of carnival. Yeah, and um, something that again, go back to King and Smith. He went down to six percent and then got sick. And, and Rob, you know, it was a couple of weeks later. Rob Wolf was talking about how our visceral fat is something that tends to hold those last few bits of, of toxins from us. Was there any sort of sickness as you, as you leaned out, or strange, strange symptomology? Um, did you get any of that candida cough or anything like that? <laughs> um, I got that. I got some nasty stuff early into my carnivore. So basically, uh, when I first started carnivore, um, I, lost, I lost about four or five kilos off the bat. Um, I was liberating all of those, obviously, dense fat cells I hadn't liberated for a very long time. Mm. And um, it, it might have been a case of like SIBO die-off. I'm not sure, but I, you know, like, you know, I went into carnivore two weeks in, and I was like, this is amazing. And then for the next two weeks, I was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm on the bathroom, like, oh my God, my, my intestines, you know, I'm, I have like diarrhea, like my nose is streaming. I've got like headaches. And thank God for the internet because, you know, at that point, that's like, wow, I'm, whatever I'm doing must be bad for me, right? But, you know, when everyone on the internet is like in the carnival community is like, no, no, stick through it. This is a die off period, you know, you're like, really? You know, this feels really sucking. And like, like by magic, a couple of days later, it's completely gone and then you're walking around. So I went through two pretty bad die-off phases during the early days of Carnival, um, where I was just, my body was getting rid of whatever it was getting rid of. Um, yeah, so that, that, was, that was rough. Um, and then, but going into, I was super paranoid about the photo shoot because I was thinking my, my, my friend got real sick after his photo shoot. He was down for about a week, but he was on more of like a, a bread and jam going into his photo shoot kind of diet and then honey nut cluster cereal coming out of it and i never like I, as soon as i finished my photo shoot i just went straight to the nearest steak restaurant and ordered two kilos of steak um and i felt great you know it was awesome so uh no i didn't get uh sick but i there was some periods earlier in my carnival days where i did get super sick because of you know that transition and that SIBO die off i'm guessing yeah no it's uh it's a fascinating thing, like I said, those deep-seated uh, fat cells that haven't moved and held onto probably something nasty, and yeah, that yeah. gets released. Um, something you brought up over the weekend on on your Instagram was electrolytes, and you know, again, Rob Wolves pushing an electrolyte. Um, the company over there I'm involved with, Prove It, that's in Hong Kong. They they've got a mitoplex. It's called for electrolytes on yeah. keto diet. What 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 are you sort of, um, you know, and you put up what what you sort of concoct together to to keep keep that in balance um if you could touch on that and, and why that's so important when when you're in a low carb state 
So I never really felt the benefits of electrolytes fully until I started fasting. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's just like a complete game changer, you know, because uh, you, you, you're like, oh my God, I'm hungry or whatever. And then there's all of these things when you early days, when you, you know, you're quite, because we're all addicted to eating at the same times every day, whether we realize it or not. Um, and then um, I post, uh, I was looking for on this, this Facebook group called uh, Fasting Lifestyle, which uh, Joachim Bartol posts. Um, he's, a, he's a great guy. He's got some really interesting stuff on there. And he was just posting up his electrolyte formula. Um, and I reached out to him, had a chat, and I tried it out. It's the one I posted. And uh, it was just such a game changer for satiety and energy, just balancing off that, um, that potassium, which I was really missing. Um, I, I obviously, when I first went carnivore, and you, you drop a lot of water immediately, which I talked about in that post, um, getting a real deep, decent pink salt is, is really valuable. Like I can really feel the difference between days where I have a decent amount of salt and days where I don't have a decent amount of salt in returns of like energy and lethargy. Um, so, you know, I consume about 10 grams of salt maybe a day, but um, I think I pushed it too far and there needs to be a balance between your sodium and potassium, you know, so, you know, you can pump sodium out and you can pump potassium in so you, 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 can, you can create energy better. So I just started adding that teaspoon of uh, potassium to my, my, my water concoctions twice a day outside of my eating window and yeah, really, really felt the benefits of uh, mental clarity, more sustained energy, and just being able to, just feeling hydrated, you know, just not needing to consume as much water because there's more minerals in there. And understandably, you know, like when I talk about, I always give people the example, probably one a real poor example, but all I got with a piece of paper is that if you ever cook something without salt in the water, it tends to draw all the nutrients out real quickly from the water, it tends to shrivel up, you know? When if you salt the water before you boil something, then it usually stays quite preserved. And it's the same as, same as the human body, you know? If you're drinking lots and lots of distilled or filtered water, which we all drink these days, because none of us run down to our, our local lake and, and get some mineral water anymore. Um, the solution of the, 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 the mineral content of the water that we're drinking is going to be less than that of our body. So in, it actually technically can pull nutrients out of you to balance the, the solution gradient on either side of your, your gut lining. So if people like this, the biggest scam in the world is you, you go to the shops and they sell pure distilled water in Hong Kong, which you drink and then immediately you're going to still be thirsty because your body's still looking for more minerals, you know? So all of my clients, they, you know, they all know without a rule, you, you need to put a little bit of something, you know, whether it's about three grams per liter, which is not a lot in your water, just to make sure that your, your, the water that you're putting inside of you has got a higher mineral content than that of your bloodstream and inside your gut lining, just so you're not further depleting yourself of these nutrients, which are so prevalent in the Krebs cycle and the energy producing process. You know, um, if anyone wants to produce uh, aerobic energy, you, know, you, you need three different, you need magnesium in three different places on the Krebs cycle. So it's a, it's a massive given. You might, um, uh, just before I left Berlin, I, I went and trained with uh, three of my mates who were off to do Sealfit, and, and they did it and they survived. Um, Kokoro, 52 hours of, of training Seal, wow. Navy Seal style. And yeah, I think we did a, it's like two and a half hours training and yeah, I bonked and it was, it was exactly that. Like you're thirsty as hell, but 
the more water you drink, the worse you get. It's <laughs> it's it's not a good place to be. <laughs> no, it's not. It, simple things. No, I, I do think we can drink too much water and we can take on too much salt, especially when it tastes so good. So a little bit of potassium goes a long way. And, you know, from an ancestral point of view, we wouldn't have needed it because, you know, we would have got it from all the water supplies that we got it. You know, it's interesting that I tell people that, you know, salt, we, that salt's the only nutrient, sorry, the non-energy providing um, nutrient that we can taste. You know, we have a taste receptor for salt, so it must be super valuable to us. We, evolution wouldn't have given us a taste receptor for salt if we didn't need it. Yeah. So, yeah, and also too much of it can be a problem. You know, we're like, yeah. yeah we have that kind of automatic back. Oh, no, that's too much salt. You know, I've just ruined my food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's absolutely, absolutely crazy. So what, is, what does a, a typical day look like for you? Um, you said you've got a continuous meter. How often do you have to check that? <laughs> oh, well, it's, the, the brilliant thing is now that it's linked to my phone. So I just, my phone just tells me what blood sugar is throughout the day, which is brilliant. Um, at the moment, I'm uh, trying to do some extended fasting most days. Um, so and I love breakfast. I've tried every fasting combination that avoids breakfast and that I just like miserable. So for me, I, I was, there was a, there's a guy called Primal Dad on Instagram we were chatting about the other day. Um, for me, I'll get up usually about 5.30, 6 o'clock uh, and just make ribeye steak straight away. It's the first thing that I do. Um, that's about the beginning of my eating window. That's about 6 o'clock going to work, uh, do some clients, do some meetings. Um, depending on how my schedule falls, I'll either train, eat, train. Oh, sorry, sorry. I'll either train and then eat or I'll eat and then train and then eat again. So usually I eat within about a six-hour window at the moment. So about 6, uh, 6 a.m., 9 a.m. and about lunchtime. Then I'll fast through until about 6 a.m. at the moment. I'm just trying that at the moment uh, just to see how my body responds to that. Um, and then, yeah, so I'm just cycling my food around my training window, essentially. And then in the afternoon, I'm fasting through. Most people are like, wow, you, you stop eating at 12? But, you know, I'm okay with that because I don't go home after about 3 or 4 p.m. in the evening. I don't do a lot of stuff in the evening. Like, I'm, I'm on this call now, so it's not a lot of high-demanding tasks. So I don't find it too difficult to fast throughout the evening. Um, and, and I love having type 1 diabetes that... As soon as you crack in that last little bit of insulin at 12 o'clock, um, you, you just have like stable blood sugar for 18 hours. So, you know, if, if I've got stable blood sugar for the majority of the day, because I'm not eating for the majority of the day, then, you know, the majority of my life, I don't technically have diabetes, you know, it's just in the middle. So I, I do really like uh, intermittent fasting daily for people with type 1 diabetes because it just... The, the, the brilliant thing was when I was fasting, I should have mentioned that before, is the first day that I ever went without doing a single unit of insulin because you didn't eat. If you're not eating and, it, and you have everything on point, you, you don't need insulin, you know? So if, you're, if, you're, if, you're not, if, you're, if your liver's not dumping a lot of glucose into your bloodstream because you've been doing it well. Um, and I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is brilliant. So I, there's no stress involved. I'm just plain sailing. Uh, I don't need to do any insulin. I technically don't have diabetes if I'm not eating. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to try and run 16 to 18 hour fast a day. Yeah, but mate, um, a couple of things there. You, you're, uh, you're a man after Sachin Panda's heart because he says that you're the most insulin sensitive in the morning anyway. Um, you're kicking off your liver's circadian rhythm. It, it, it's got a master clock as well. So there's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot to saying that that's actually the right way to do it. So I guess, you know, that, that 
that's cool. Um, <laughs> um, it's not. It's not super sociable sometimes when yeah. <laughs> you even want to go out and eat in the evening, you know. But I, if, at this moment, time works for me. Like I'll I'll throw it out on the weekends and I'll fast through and have lunch and dinner with people sometimes when I need to. But that's my basic like Monday to Friday setup. Yeah, and and that's that's about the only thing that's that's keeping me from from doing something like that. Like, I guess I could. I can miss breakfast, but I'm a bit like you. I, I, I love breakfast. And, yeah, I, and my breakfast is, is bacon and eggs and, and a coffee. So it's so good. Yeah. yeah it, it's low carb anyway, so it doesn't matter too much. I've been I've been messing around with missing lunch quite a lot. Um, just, just going two, two lots of 12 hours, you know, that, that seems to be, you know, another way of doing it. But um, the thing that I, I loved what you said just then and that when you don't eat, you theoretically don't have diabetes. And, the thing that drives me absolutely insane is when my type 2 diabetic clients come in and they're on insulin and I'm thinking, oh, you shouldn't be on insulin. And then we go, so what do you base your dosage on? And they're like, what do you mean? I just take this one three times a day. And I'm just like, what the hell yeah. is, is going on there? And, and, of, and of course, you, you're talking about that, that energy partitioning and accessing um, your fatty acids. These people can't even get below six without feeling like absolute shit because then they have no access to energy anymore because their body's just in this storage, 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 storage dose. And, and it's just like, oh, oh, come on. Um, and, and, and I floated it a few times on on Twitter to, to the likes of Gary Pick, who, who has been taken to through the ringer for um, advising people to go low carb. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I watched on the fat documentary recently. Yeah, how good is that documentary? It was, it was great. <laughs> um, on, on a day that the uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger James Cameron documentary comes out, and <laughs> so, well, while we're on that, I had a had a fellow who's, who's a rugby player go, "Oh, Game Changers! This is an awesome documentary." And I, I just couldn't help myself, and I said to him, "Are you keen on being a little bit more injured, Leggy? Because, mate, uh, it's what." Sean, go back to Sean Baker. That, that's what he said today. Reeled, reeled off the laundry list of people who are injured. <laughs> yeah, I, and I'll stand by that. You know, like any time that um, I've tried to in the past go plant based or try, you know, including more plants into my diet before I knew better. You know, for this podcast, before I knew better, we all make mistakes. Um, <laughs> it just, uh, what, it just wasn't good. Like I can't, I can't ever look back to a, a time where I thought, "Wow, this plant makes me feel so good." You know, I mean, in, like it's just, 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 just not there. You know. Yeah, the the exception to that might be when you've been eating absolute shit, and you get a good dose of 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 cruciferous, and you know, of course, that's helping you first pass metabolism, get rid of that crap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Compared to actually that, that, there you go. You reminded me. Compared to when I was on, when I was in my in my late teens, and I was eating McDonald's every single day, moving to like a paleo <laughs> approach. Uh, was definitely a step in the right direction. Um, but then there's no need to stop there. You can then drop your fruits and vegetables, you know, or your vegetables and just be even better, you know? Yeah, no, it, it's crazy, man. Um, so do you get an HbA1c much? Uh, I, I haven't recently. Uh, my last HbA1c was on point. Um, um, I get a typical AB. My, my phone gives me a predicted A1c because I have... Uh, continuous glucose monitor in there um i should grab it my phone somewhere over there but it's always super it's always solid you know like uh i look i look more than just at my average i posted my average blood glucose for 90 days as part of the photo that sean baker reposted and my average blood glucose was 5.1 which was solid but um when um for someone you know doing manually but 
that doesn't paint the full picture because, you know, like let's say that 12 hours I was at 12 and then 12 hours as I was at like zero, the average would still be like six, right? You know, yeah, so yeah. Um, it doesn't really paint the perfect picture. So the, the, the best thing that you can look at, you can set your target for these uh, glucose monitors is timing target. You can, you can actually tell you what percentage of the time today were you between whatever you set yours at. And I set mine quite stringently between 3.9 and 6. Um, <laughs> and if anything out of that is out of target. So, you know, I'm looking for, I'm looking for literally 60, 70, 80% of the time, time and target. And I'm just chipping away at that each, uh, just refining my approach over and over again, just to see as much time and target as I can. What often happens with me more is that I'll drop down to like 3.8 and I'll wake up and I'll have been like 3.8 all night as opposed to 3.9. So my, 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 my phone's telling me it's like, oh, you've been out of target the entire night because you've been 0.1 too low. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> it, won't, it won't let you set it lower than 3.9 sometimes because that's like, you know, your emergency low. So um, my, mine tends to be runs a little bit too low, which running low blood glucose is, has got its own challenges in its own. But again, uh, I even when I'm outside of target, it's just like 6.5 or or uh, you know 3.8. It's just touching. I, I I don't remember the last time that I went up into double digits, um, which was which would happen every single day on a carb based diet. Yeah, man. And um, just for those out there freaking out, uh, if if you're a keen listener of Peter Atia, he always brings up these crazy studies they did in the 60s where they were looking at the keto diet and they had people running ketones of like five millimolar and they dosed them with insulin and <laughs> dropped them down to like one and two and, and they were still fine. Do you, do you measure your ketones at all? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do measure my ketones. I measure my ketones all the way through my, um, my, my cutting. Um, I still measure them now sporadically. Um, but what I noticed was people are always like, are you scared about being in ketoacidosis? I'm like, not really because, um, you need quite. You need to be quite strict on your protein requirements in order to stay in deep ketosis. You know, you need to be not eating large amounts of protein. And if the if you everyone eats their favorite cut in the world of ribeye steak, um, which is you know like the the, the gold standard of uh, I guess being on a carnivore diet, uh, that's got enough protein in it to kind of offset being in super deep ketosis. Hmm. Um, so if I was to eat my, my, my amount of calories I like to eat, that's enough to keep me in ketosis, but kind of like that 0.5 to 1 kind of bracket often. Um, if I was to do a bit more of extended fasting, it bumps up a little bit. But if when I was doing um, some of the longer fasts, if my ketones started to creep up to like 3, 4, which is not even that high um, compared to some people up there who are running at like 10 and 12 all the time, um, a good protein refeed, and that drops it back down because you do need to bolus a little bit more for protein than you do. Um, obviously, nowhere near as much as you need to bolus for carbs, but you need to a little bit more circulating insulin if you do have more protein in your diet above your dietary requirements because you get a bit of gluconeogenesis from that protein, you know? So I always find that a good protein refeed brings my ketones back down to just normal nutritional ketosis levels. Yeah, no, that's cool. And um, I've spoken about it many times. Last year's... Most read article was was pediatrics looking at top one grit and and that's that's where Dr. Yeah. Bernstein sets things that it's a low carbohydrate high protein diet and and um, yeah the the proofs in the pudding of that again those those kids being inside their target ranges um, minimal lows minimal highs 
um, and growing normally like Artie Dutman's son, that guy's a machine basketball player, you know, but he's, he's tall, you know, he's, he's starved himself of carbohydrates and look at look yeah, at yeah. <laughs> I had a woman email me out of the blue. She must have, I don't know where she got my email address from. Uh, hey, um, I've got a 13-year-old son who's, uh, been can- who's been keto for three years, cannibal for a year. I was like, what? <laughs> why weren't you my mother? <laughs> you know, when I, was, when I was 13 years old, you know, like I was, uh, I was eating, like I was saying with diagnosis, I was eating just about 20 Weetabix a day and like five liters of milk. And then the only thing the dietary advice they told me was to, put sweetener on your Weetabix instead of sugar. You know, I was like, yeah, I don't, that, that amount of sugar that I was sprinkling on my Weetabix is the least thing I need to worry about. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I was like, awesome. You know, like, um, like the biohacking family, you know, they're such a great, they're a good, great family. You know, um, nutrition with Judy, you know, feeding your kids this, this meat-based diet. And I was just like, ah, oh, that, I'm, I'm, I, it warms my, you know, you're only one person that I've met out of 7 billion people who's emailed me saying I've got my child on a, a cannibal diet, but you've made my day. I thank you. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, shit, what was I going to say there? Um, oh, it doesn't matter. Uh, kind of going to be that good. Um, yeah, no, that, that's that's the positive of, of social media, isn't it? And like, oh, yeah. Oh, who, who, there's, yeah, there's heaps of all these families out there like going like Western A Prize or, you know, not that I agree with everything out of that place, but a, a lot a lot of the, the base yeah. is, is, is good and, and, and yeah, that like sustainable family. And then, and I love the, the ones that are sort of, in terms of sustainability, they're actually growing their meat and, and creating these little villages and little, little tribes of, of, of food and, and realism about it. And, and of course, you know now we've got uh, getting Instagram blocking all all of that. But hey, that's fine. Um, has have any of your daily stakes been blocked? <laughs> no, but I'm uh, maybe uh, it's it's maybe I don't know the part of the world I'm in. You know, we Hong Kong maybe maybe with the exception of Switzerland, we eat the most meat out of any country in the world. You know, so I guess uh, I I don't know if it's being that sensitive at that point. I haven't actually. I have, I've had more people, uh, I've had more stuff come up on my newsfeed about people like vegans tagging carnival and their posts and now, you know, like they're, they're trying to, they must be taking off because, you know, I'll, 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 I'll flick through my Instagram and there'll be some vegan propaganda bullshit um, tagged with carnival in it. And I'm like, wait, that's not, you know, and I'll flag that as inappropriate. I'm like, no, that's not carnival post. And then, and then Instagram will message me back saying, uh, that doesn't violate our terms and conditions. I'm sorry. I'm like, oh, come on. Other way around, it would be, uh, it'd be different. But it's, it's like, I'm so glad that people like you are reaching out and doing these sorts of things because we need to share the message and it will change eventually. You know, social pressure is the only way to get people to change, you know? Yeah. It's funny you say, I'm guilty of, uh, you know, I'll probably put a vegan tag on this one when it goes to YouTube too. But <laughs> and, 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 um, and also, you know, when, like, say you see some propaganda, I, I, every now and again, I'll go, this is misleading. <laughs> hey, this is misleading. And I try not to, because, you know, like, it's the whole thing that just let people do whatever they want to do, right? But it's hard when uh, it's hard when someone's kind of attacking you not to attack them back and just take the high ground, which was so early in my carnival days, you know, like January, February, March, and I was telling people about it. And then it wasn't until, right, you know, I'm going to let my, you know, like Sean Baker was like, just let your results do your talking, you know? And then I was like, okay, bam, I'm going to post a carnival cut, you know? And then 
now you now I have a platform to tell people from a point of results, you know. So that's I think we all have to do. We all have to connect and support each other, and we all have to produce. We have to lead by example by showing our results off, as opposed to just demonizing veganism. Yeah, and I guess you know from you can, you can sort of look at the biohacker sphere as, as a bit uh, naff and a bit sort of geeky, but at the same time, like you say, it, it allows um, that N equals one to have more meaning to it. And, and you know, um, I've got a good, good mate who, who is uh, keen on triathlon and he's got an aura ring and he's, and he's into ketosis and all that sort of stuff and, and training intensely to then go and do a um, 70.2 uh, uh, Iron Man, and it, it's it's like, but he can say, you know, I've slept this good, um, you know, here's his, you know, I don't have SIBO, I, I, you know, all that, all that. <laughs> it means it means that he has to talk about pooing in an ice cream container and sending it down to Hawks Bay, but <laughs> it's uh, it's like that that biohacking, is, I don't think is naff anymore, and and like I said, people like Peter Atia, who's who's pushing the aura ring, pushing glucose, continuous glucose meters. Um, on that, what, what glucose meter are you using? Uh, the only one I have access to in Hong Kong is the Freestyle Libra. Yeah, which um, is still a good unit, eh? <laughs> yeah, still a good unit. I would like to try the Dexcom because uh, sometimes it's a little off, a little bit. You know, like uh, I woke up the other day and uh, sometimes it reads, a, when it's high, it reads a little too high. And when it's low, it reads a little too low sometimes because of uh, CGMs uh, have like a slightly different reading to like straight blood glucose. Um, they take like extracellular instead of like intracellular, but um, yeah, it's 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 been a game changer. I don't have to prick my fingers; my the ends of my fingers are not scarred up and gnarly anymore. So uh, that's that's a major benefit, and it just gives you so much more feedback. You know, even even back in the days when I was on a carb-based diet, um, it was just like, wow, sweet potato really messes your blood sugar up, but rice is is okay; it keeps your blood sugar quite stable. Hmm, you know, it gets you thinking. You know, you can see that not all food is created equally. Yeah, and on the flip side, they're sort of um, lessening their um, thoughts about potato, normal potato, starchy potato, that, you know, maybe it's not as severe as we once thought as well, you know, and especially, you know, that, that double cooking potato thing. God knows how that works, but <laughs> less impact. Um, so what for people in Hong Kong, you know, obviously there's probably a little bit of NHS hangover going on there and then, then Chinese influence. What's, what's the health system? How does it sort of work for you? How do you access that sort of stuff? So um, I, can't, I can't fault it. I think the, the, the healthcare here is pretty decent. Um, we all, as expats, you, you, everyone just gets private medical care in case anything really goes wrong. Yeah. Um, you have your insurance. But... Um, once upon a time, I dropped a dumbbell on my toe, and uh, <laughs> and uh, no, it was a weight plate actually, and it shattered my big toe into about eight pieces, and uh, I needed a metal rod to go through my foot, and uh, they fixed it for like fifteen US dollars. You know, I just yeah. had to. It was about fifteen years on the local medical care because I've been here for long enough, and uh, and yeah, I, I I was in and out in hospital. I was fine. The, oh, that brings me an interesting story perfectly fine the surgery was a success the doctors and nurses wonderful people but when i was lying there post-surgery on my bed um they were like um oh we're gonna bring you around your diabetic meal um, <laughs> okay <laughs> they bring me out this tray of uh of bread rice crackers and congee and then i was just like wait i'm lying in bed and you're feeding me sugar sugar and sugar 
in that order, you know? And I was like, no. And the nurse is standing above me and she's just doing her job. You have to eat this. This is a diabetic meal. You have diabetes. As I, I couldn't think of anything worse than ingesting 250 grams of carbs while I can't walk and I'm stuck in bed post-surgery while I've got all these drugs running through my system. That would have been horrific. And I was like, um, no, thank you. I'll just fast. Which is not the thing you want to be doing post-surgery. You know, you want to be eating post-surgery. But uh, I mean, in the recovery period. But um, luckily enough, you know, I, I had a phone on me like we all do. Phone people. Hey, can you bring me some food, please? There was nothing here. Um, and it all went well. But that is fundamentally at the highest form of, 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 of health service. The advice for diabetes is wrong. Yeah. Um, that, that koji, is that like a, a fermented milk? Is that right? Well, congee, no, no, it's just congee is, uh, is just when you cook down rice that it so much it becomes a liquid. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess it'd be amazing tasting if you threw loads of honey and jam in it, but uh, that's not my lifestyle. You know, I'm not, it's not, it's not going to be the best thing for you in the world. It's just, it's just like dessert, you know? Yeah. No, I, I remembered what I was going to say before. And that was, that was, um, that, that turnaround of, of, of you getting emailed that from the mum that, just put her son on a carnival diet and you're, you're sort of saying, well, I wish my mom had done that for me. But of course, there's the documentary coming out soon. That's the flip side of that. And that um, hospital meal speaks to it. Uh, that, yeah. you know, these people that are doing that are having protective services threatened to them that they're abusing their child and, and, and yeah, that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Um, I think, again, that's why your example might be more meaningful than, than the N equals one that you are. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I uh, so I'm just plugging my laptop in because my thing is dying of battery. Okay, uh, there we go. Um, yeah, I think that it needs to be again. I, I guess it's not as simple. I know that people like uh, Chris Cresser are trying to go to the top of the food chain and start looking at like this fundamental advice, but I think. Uh, we, you know, there needs to be this, this push and this experience. And I need to actually make a point of going to, you know, these diabetes, these diabetes days and opens and just, and, and just spend the message. Um, because I think that, that again, it's, it's going to be hard to change, um, these, these opinions and these people on these boards, but just when it comes to like recycling, recycling and, and the use of plastic bottles as, as, and that's the consensus people want change. You know, they don't want a world filled by plastic. So I think that we all need to group together, like I was just saying, and, and get this message out as much as, as possible um, in any way that we can. And really, like, like, like you're doing now, popularizing these podcasts, and like I'm posting on my social media, really try and get this message out in any way we can. And social media, for all of its good, bad, and faults, it does seem to be the best way to get out this, this message of of you know i would never have found sean baker unless he was so aggressive with his you know his, his posts on uh, social media i would never have found you know paul saladino and all these wonderful guys that have a lot of, of information and i know that we can all get sucked into being on social media all the time and, and you know like the whole digital minimalism thing is coming in as being more healthy but at the same time i think that I, we have a responsibility to show people that there's a better way to do things, you know, because I went back home to visit my dad in, in Glasgow and then there's public signs everywhere, you know, 
like government-supported public signs in bathrooms, in restaurants, in airports about going vegan. And you know that's coming down from the top. And you can't blame people for thinking this must be right because the government's telling me to do it because you don't look deeper than that, right? So I think that um, I think that the best avenue for us is we can all do is support each other in this fear on social media, get as many movements as we can, and you know really support you know, these films that are coming out, these documentaries that are coming out, and then the people that are actually trying to make a push in the industry and, and you know, make these changes. Yeah, and, and just, man, the irony of that, you know, places like Glasgow, Wales, even the Midlands of the UK, Ireland, New Zealand, Australia, there's this, this vegan push for our, our temperate climate environments where we grow the most amazing animal products on pasture is you know like i say that and in, in new zealand we've got uh, the the problem that it's so much of our industry that hey they're getting all the blame um and you know there's there's a massive issue with you going back to water our, our fresh water has has been impacted from intensity but at the same time like this this is not the answer and especially for us in those areas um, where we don't have the sun, where where we don't have the the access to grow these vast array of tropical superfoods, if you want to call yeah. them those, <laughs> um, yeah. and 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 you just I just can't believe that in Glasgow that's been slandered across across public spaces. <laughs> it is it's, it's terrible, you know, and they have some of the best, you know beef in the world you know it's, it's fantastic um highland kettle come on <laughs> yeah you know so much grassland and it's it's criminal because you know we we know that you know um cows you know like you know a cow can produce depending like highland cattle maybe more but you know a decent cow you can get 200 kilos of beef off you know some of these big bad highland castles you know maybe 250 maybe more and that's enough food to feed someone for a year, you know, like 200, you give me 250 grams of beef a day and a few chick of a year and give me some few chickens, I'll make do, you know, I'll be okay. Um, but um, the amount of space and, and water and topsoil degradation and food that you need to steal from third world countries to feed people on a vegan diet is, is insane, you know? And then how do you repair that topsoil once you, once you've depleted it because you've over farmed it? Well, need animals to come and sit on it right you know what i mean so it's it the whole argument doesn't make sense and people with everything they just don't stop to sit there and think wow you know it, 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 i, I they sh everyone should like, have a bit more skepticism in life i think you know everyone should just question what they hear instead of taking it as as gospel and i should have as well you know i i, I feel like i've taken the right color pill from the, the matrix and, and i know exactly what the, the other side of it is i you know i've tried both sides and uh I know this is a side for me, but uh, but yeah, I, I keep getting my friends from back home messaging me. So Jay, what are your thoughts about you know the Game Changers movie? And it's so glad that I can just screenshot all of the stuff that people are already posting out there without me having to write it up each time about how all these athletes are are failing on these vegan diets. So um, yeah, I, I can't believe it. I was shocked and appalled when I was there. Um, if people want to eat vegan, like go for it, be, be my guest, do do whatever you want. But the same with religion, right? You just don't try and force it on everyone else that you you come across, you know, and then jump onto some global warming um, bandwagon. Yeah, I did. And I saw a, a, a cheap farmer today 
putting up your your vegan clothes are plastic. You, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're basically using petrol and plastic. <laughs> good luck, good luck trying to dispose of your plastic clothing. <laughs> yeah, and flying that food in plastic from other parts of the world is is doing way more damage than me eating locally sourced meat. You know, I'm not saying that I do all the time, but I'm just saying it's the most ethical thing to do is decentralized farming. You know. Yeah. Um. How how is the the access to meat in Hong Kong? I, I've got a, a guy that I know through the deer industry that's in in mainland China, and you know he puts up ridiculous prices of of Australian beef in, in China. What's it like in Hong Kong? Expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so um, to what the US dollar? Let me work it out. It's about one to eight. So if I'm paying. 245 a kilo divided by eight. So I'm paying about 30 US dollars for New Zealand beef per kilo. Yeah. So, US dollars. Actually, that's not. It's not super insane. Um, If you buy it online in bulk, you can get it quite, you can get it decent. Um, But if you you buy in the supermarkets, decent beef, grass fed beef, probably about double that price, probably about 60 US dollars a kilo. Actually, that's that's probably about three times. I'm just trying to think. Uh, a good good bit of beef would be around twenty four dollars a kilo in New Zealand. So then you double that. So you're around forty four. Uh, sorry, half that. Yeah, around twelve twelve US dollars. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. still expensive. It is what it is. I mean, it's it's not it's an investment in your health. Right? I'm never going to sacrifice. Actually, my food bill went down after going carnivore. Everyone's like, "Doesn't this cost you expensive?" I was like. No, I mean, I've stopped buying organic spinach and organic berries and all of this other stuff that I didn't ever need that was making me nutrient deficient. And just eating beef, my, my actual food bill has gone down. Like straight up, I've got more money at the end of the month because there's no food waste. You know, like my butcher gives me, my butcher gives me bone marrow, like um, the shins of the bones. And then I, I eat the beef and then there's the offcuts that, you know, people eat, I eat. So there's just so little food waste with this kind of maximizing calorie with this way of eating that, you know, like there was that Australian farmer on the HBO podcast recently was just saying that, you know, even when you grow plants, you only get to eat about 10, 15% of the plant and the rest of it gets, gets wasted and the world wastes 40% of that food in, in any way, you know. So I do like the fact that we, we do eat as much nose tail as possible. And that's what Asia is very good at as well. You know, the access to local meat is, is super easy, you know, and it's super cheap. But uh with all of the, again, I should probably have more skepticism, but with all of the reports of uh, swine flu coming from mainland China, I'm just a bit skeptical about eating uh, local meat sometimes. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to, you know, with spring coming, hopefully get out and, and get, get a deer or two and, and I'm hopefully going hunt, hunting this weekend on a farm. So my fingers are crossed that, that uh, there's some success there and, and you yeah, turn the freezer on and, and yeah, feed, feed the family for a while mate this has been so cool and i'm so grateful that you said you'd come on here and, and i'm glad we've done this um where do people track you down and keep following this awesome journey and awesome example so yeah i'm on a couple of platforms but my most prominent platform is uh is instagram that i'm posting most of my stuff on so follow me there at diabetic.carnivore and uh, yeah, you can participate in my blood sugar posts, my selfie posts, and my meat posts for the continual future. <laughs> awesome, man. So, what you, you touched on a few things like red, red pill, green pill, <laughs> or blue pill, sorry, and, and all that sort of stuff. What, what would you sort of leave people to think about 
um, and, and and probably something that's sort of guided your life and, and hasn't done you wrong? Um, I guess uh, a, a side bit of advice away from all of this, you know, um, I, have, I have the privilege of training some successful clients and one piece of advice they always uh, tell me, and this is something that's always in my mind is, you know, chase excellence, not cash. Because, you know, once you achieve excellence, uh, all the cash chases you, you know. So <laughs> I always kind of remember to uh, always think about quality over quantity and really just uh, just do, do a good job of, you know, what you're doing. So uh, that's, that's something that I, uh, I live for. And also, it's better to be busy than broke. So I always run by that model, though, which is perfect for Hong Kong. It is much better <laughs> to be busy than broke. Everyone wants a balanced lifestyle until you're broke, so. <laughs> legend mate i'm gonna press stop there and um this has been absolutely awesome cheers thanks man what a way to finish true hong kong style <laughs> i'm absolutely buzzing after that uh, podcast it, when i saw that someone who's type 1 diabetic had been carnivore efficiently now for a year i was like this is such a game changer this is exactly what people like Sean Baker have been talking about. Um, there, there is a ton of doctors out there who are screaming from the rafters, being told that they're idiots, being told that um, they need to step in line, you know, that what they're doing is wrong, what they're doing is harming people. As I said in the podcast, is documentary coming out about people that are trying to follow this Bernstein method, the top one group method, which is, you know, again, like I said, the most read paper of 2018 because of how awesome the Bernstein method works. Um, these parents being told that uh, the doctors are going to contact child services because they're harming their children just because they want them to have a normal functioning life. They don't want them on this glucose roller coaster. They don't want to be dosing them with excessive amounts of insulin. And then, like I was saying to Jay, the hangover that that has for people managing type 1 diabetes, just being bolused a, a standard dose of insulin um, throughout the day when they've already got massive amounts of endogenous insulin. They are insulin resistant. Their body does not want to listen to insulin anymore because they have so much energy stored in their body that it's... it's oh, I actually say to my patients, it's like throwing shit against the wall and hoping some sticks, trying to get rid of the glucose out of the blood. But really, we need to get glucose and energy out of the cell so that the person can function. And if you were dosing them up on insulin, the storage hormone, then there is no way that you can access that energy that's stored in the body. <sighs> As you can tell by my voice, it's the biggest frustration for me. Um, and... As I've shared, it's because I lost my grandfather to type 2 diabetes. I didn't know any of this stuff, and it's why I've pursued this stuff. Um, so many patients say to me, man, you should be a doctor. No, I shouldn't be a doctor. I'm an optometrist. I love optometry. Um, diabetes affects the eyes so bad that blood vessels in the eyes don't have that muscular sheath. They are exposed. They are the most sensitive to diabetes. That number we're talking about, HbA1c, if it's above 64 or 7, um, depending on what units you're using, then there is an exponential risk for diabetic retinopathy. And it breaks my heart seeing diabetic retinopathy because things ain't good then. Um, and it's, especially when someone starts on insulin, 
it happens fast and it's not good. And if it's happening in the eyeballs, guess what? It's happening everywhere else as well. And yeah, it's that five-year decline after that. And I don't want that for anybody. I don't want that for anybody's families. And just to think about what that person's going through for a condition that hasn't been very well explained to them. And from all accounts, it appears that the person managing them doesn't know much about it, it breaks my heart every day. So yeah, that's why this conversation's so important and why Jay sharing his story and us sharing Jay's story to other people is hugely important because it's going to change the world. Um, obesity, diabetes, metabolic syndrome is going to bankrupt the Western world. It's no joke about that. Um, I was listening to Peter Atia today talking with David Sinclair and it seems that in the Western world, longevity has stopped um, and maybe cresting and reducing because of these metabolic diseases, these modern diseases that are preventable and reversible. Yeah, like I said in the podcast, I'm involved with Prove It, P-R-U-V-I-T. You can access exogenous ketones, the Mitoplex, that uh, electrolyte supplement as well, on waiket0.proveitnow.com. Uh, that website is open to US, Canada, Australia and East Asia, including Hong Kong. Um, if you're in New Zealand, you'll need to contact me at the Stag Raw on Instagram or on the Waikato Facebook page, W-A-I-K-E-T-O. And on that page, you'll also find links to all the podcasts that we've done so far. That's enough for episode 94. What a cracker. We'll keep bringing you more. This is so much fun. And uh, yeah, send us some feedback, send Jay some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Have a good one.